Welcome to Professors at Work, a weekly program where we talk with an AUB, American University of Beirut, professor about their research, why it matters, and what they've discovered. I'm your host, Rami Khouri, from the Media Studies program, and we're happy to have you with us. I'm particularly happy today to have as our guest Dr. Neda Milham from the Faculty of Health Sciences, and she holds several positions there. She's director of the Division of Health Professions, chair of the Medical Lab Sciences Department, member of the National Lebanese Committee for Communicable Diseases, and a member of AUB's COVID-19 Expert Committee, which brings together experts from all over AUB to look at the situation uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic and to offer advice and guidance to the university and the wider community and how to deal with it. She is a virologist and an immunologist by uh, professor. And Nada, we're very happy to have you. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. So uh, if you're a virologist, you must be one of the busiest people in the world today researching uh, the viruses that we're dealing with. So tell us about what is your exact research focus and did it evolve at all after this pandemic started? Well, thank you for asking this question because uh, uh, originally and uh, naturally, my research program actually focuses on HIV and norovirus. And of course, we know HIV and I, I actually, uh, uh, my research specifically on HIV in Lebanon uh, deals with uh, the uh, some genetic uh, and genotypic characterization uh, among individuals with comorbid conditions that are aging with HIV. And the other component of my research program is actually on viral diarrheal diseases. And norovirus is one of the leading causes of uh, diarrhea and uh, hospitalization among children less than five years old, but also among uh, adults and immunosuppressed individuals. So the other component is that I study that in Lebanon and its genotypic characterization and comparing uh, the circulating strains that we also have compared to, to the world. I have finished actually uh, published a book with Springer Nature on norovirus that I edited myself and have written as well two chapters on the correlates of protection and vaccine studies about norovirus. Originally, my HIV work when I did my PhD and postdoc was actually on developing uh, therapeutic immunization and vaccination against HIV in the animal model and the human model. Now, with the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, there, were, there was a shift, uh, I wouldn't say in priorities, because uh, SARS-CoV-2 is another virus, and it is our responsibility to actually understand and collect data and evidence-based data in order to be able to design design and device uh, therapeutics, vaccines, and everything. So this is why, since the beginning of the pandemic, uh, my research has, has actually now included a huge part on COVID-19. And I have four grants on COVID-19, and we are going to start uh, uh, collecting samples in order to study immune responses among individuals that got infected with COVID-19. Uh, we are going to study as well presence or absence of antibodies among healthcare workers and exposure to COVID-19 during this whole pandemic. Uh, we are going to, to collect and archive all sorts of samples in order to generate a, uh, a repository as well as a registry for COVID-19 as well in Lebanon. 
starting from EB. And I'm actually also planning uh, further in order to be involved in some, hopefully, vaccine studies related to COVID-19. So, so yes, there was a shift, but this is something that we need to do in order to advance scientific evidence to be able to really help you know, everybody in order to make this pandemic a non-pandemic. So you're doing four different dimensions of research about COVID-19, and there must be uh, probably thousands of other people like you around the world who are equally working very hard to try to understand what's going on and how to uh, find a, a solution for it. Is there a difference in researching, say, the COVID-19 virus in Lebanon, from China, from Argentina, from Canada? Or is there a common human condition and a common uh, 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 virus action mode? So, so the virus and the nature of the virus and its dynamics, of course, what we have been seeing since the beginning of this pandemic uh, and the declaration of this pandemic in March 11, has been very common all over the world. Now, when we talk about research interests, of course, different groups and different scientists would have different input based on their interest in a specific aspect of the virus. So you would see in the scientific literature, some individual, some researchers actually studying the pathogenesis of the virus or its ability to cause disease, others the replication cycle and the reproduction of this disease, others studying uh, transmissibility and the epidemiology, uh, others studying the uh, genetic evolution and whether we have any mutation or changes in circulating strains, and others, of course, studying the uh, treatment and cures, potential cures and therapies, because until now we do not have a specific treatments or medicine for COVID-19, and the same things applies for vaccines. Uh, this is a communicable disease, and uh, we would hope that it's going to be under the list of vaccine-preventable diseases now that we have many vaccine studies taking place. So each scientist and researcher would take a certain aspect based on their expertise, but of course the collection and the, the collectivity of the evidence is going to help the scientific community and the world uh, and and the globe to advance our knowledge and uh, about COVID-19 as well as to be able to prevent and control its spread. And is there a global mechanism where all researchers can share their work and their findings uh, in real time so that you benefit from each other's work? For the genotypes that are circulating, we do have that platform whereby different sequences of the virus, specifically COVID-19 as well as other viruses, they get dumped in a certain platform and we have access to it in order to determine the genetic uh, evolution of the virus. Now, the uh, other components and the findings actually get published in peer-reviewed journals. And this is how scientists all over the world get to know about what's happening. And this is a very important step to initiate collaboration, knowing through the peer uh, review mechanism of the finding, uh, which give it uh, a rigor and, uh, um, yeah, rigor. But peer-reviewed publications take months and months to get done. 
Yes, uh, that's correct, and uh, you, would you would be happy to know, actually, that uh, with COVID-19, this process has been uh, expedited, similar to the process of, uh, uh, you know, uh, the design and the development of the vaccine. This, uh, you know, speed record of uh, design and development, and the same thing for, for the peer review process uh, in terms of findings related to COVID-19. And sometimes some of the findings, in order to make it available for the scientific community, they get actually published with a disclaimer that they still need to be peer-reviewed, but at least to share this type of information with the global research community. Okay. So given what you've done on COVID since uh, January uh, and with your previous work, are there one or two highlights in terms of your results that you find are the most significant that would be of interest to people all around the world? My research is still not at the stage of the results phase. And however, I believe that uh, these results are going to feed into the design and the development of and the success of vaccines because, you know, I'll be studying the immune responses and neutralizing antibody responses. And these are very important to the correlate of protection that would determine the ability of a vaccine to protect and uh, the duration of its protection. So we still have uh, a way hopefully not long way to come, but it will feed into the results of the scientific uh, research. And in the meantime, your membership on the AUB committee, the National Lebanese Committee, um, includes sharing not just your technical knowledge, but providing suggestions with your colleagues on how people should behave. Uh, what is your assessment of the effort to uh, deal with the virus based on people individually taking good measures that can keep it down, especially in view of the fact that we did reasonably well in Lebanon in the early months, and recently there's been a spike and there had to be another uh, lockdown. So w where are we in that process of the medical and the research community convincing the public and the government uh, what needs to be done? Yes, you are right. At one point of time, because of the uh, implementation of lockdown and the state of emergency, and this has resulted in a, a decline in the percentage of confirmed cases of COVID-19. Now, after that, we had, of course, similar to any other country globally, to uh, ease up the lockdown in order to uh, also open up the economy. Uh, but having done that should have been aligned and coincided with governmental as well as an individual responsibility. So uh, we've seen complacency and we've seen the people letting off their guard when it comes to COVID-19, thinking that this virus, you know, because of the decline in the uh, number, the cumulative number of cases, that it's gone, but COVID-19 is here to stay. And so this is why the intermittent lockdown is important in order to remind us all, and this is taking place in Lebanon and globally, to remind us that we need to implement the public health approach and to instill it rigorously in order to be able to control the spread of the virus. And this would include wearing masks. This would include, of course, the frequent hand washing. But this was, would include preventing being present in an area with a large number of people, preventing the gatherings, the social events, and all of these. And we actually uh, failed at one point of time in Lebanon to, uh, to have this implemented. And this is why we see now the surge in the uh, number of cases. And you have in Lebanon 
three particular circumstances that uh, are making the situation more challenging. Uh, the economic collapse of the last couple of years, uh, the mass protests in the streets against the government, and recently the explosion in the port. And these three have all uh, included big crowds and people going out. Have you been able to assess at all if the increase in the uh, rate of uh, um, the virus contamination has been related to any of those? You know, we believe that because these are events that uh, are associated with uh, large uh, gatherings, uh, and of course the blast on August uh, 4 has shifted priorities uh, in in Lebanon, which is understandable because people, I think, forgot about COVID-19 because they wanted to take care about uh, of their of their wounded and their uh, lost ones and and all of this. Now we. Believe believe that this could have uh, actually uh, driven uh, the spike, but we do not have data. And it's very important before having a definitive answer to that to assess and map uh, the relationship uh, between these events as well as the increase in COVID-19. And we don't have this this data. Um, Another interesting dimension of the COVID-19 virus the way that different countries have reacted to it. So you have the Swedish model, you have Singapore, Taiwan, New Zealand, um, the rather unsuccessful American system, Brazil. So when you look around the world and you see all these different ways to deal with it, um, what is your conclusion as a virologist? Uh, Is there one best way to do this? It's, it's another great question because I, I keep on saying that there is uh, no one size that fits all. Uh, but uh, this is why we have to assess the conditions uh, in any different nation in order to be able to implement the best public health uh, approach in order to control uh, the spread of COVID-19. But what we have learned all across since the beginning of the pandemic, that it is very important that we uh, uh, implement uh, the public health approach, and uh, because that's the best way uh, until we have the development of vaccine. And uh, we have to deal with it until we get the final results of the vaccine studies. Uh, So we have to, the public health approach has been the best uh, in order to do that, and we have to instill it. And lockdowns, unfortunately, even though they pressure the economic situation of any country, not only Lebanon, but uh, these are basically constant reminders, if you would like, or intermittent reminders of people that, you know, we are losing control, but we have to really uh, refrain and uh, think back about our behavior and what has led to the change and to the resurgence of the number of cases. And uh, this is why it is very important to implement the public health approach, which is continuously wearing masks, staying at least two meters uh, away if we are not able to wear a mask from people and prevent all of the large gatherings and and all of these. One of the things you do with your colleagues on the AUB uh, COVID-19 committee and on the National Lebanese Committee is offer uh, advice and suggestions based on scientific evidence. Uh, And one of the big questions everywhere in the world now is, should schools reopen, uh, primary, secondary, university schools? What is your opinion on that from what you know and what you've discussed with your colleagues? And what are you advising AUB and the government? 
This is a timely question because we've recently at the National Committee for Communicable Diseases reviewed and revised the plan for schools in Lebanon. And again, there is no one size that fits all. But however, the recommendations are based on the resources of different schools uh, to either go fully online if we are not able, if those schools are not able to provide uh, the measures that are important to control the spread, which means that if the classrooms uh, cannot afford a small number uh, or a reduction in the capacity and the occupancy rate in order to keep the social distancing uh, between students and, uh, and teachers, then the online model would fit. Some schools might elect, if they have the resources, to have a hybrid model of both the online and the uh, alternative or alternating type of teaching uh, uh, face-to-face. So it all depends on the ability to implement the social distancing in addition to the measures uh, that are related to transport of students, to the entry of students, to the exit of students, to the car lines for the students, the teaching uh, in class, and, uh, and uh, like I said, distancing between uh, students and, and teachers. So all of the providing masks, providing hand sanitizers, the optimal conditions for, uh, for uh, sanitation and hand washing. So all of these are measures that are present in the national guidelines for for schools and the reopening. And the same thing for AUB. So we care about the safety of our students and the safety of our colleagues and the safety of the whole institute. And this is why we have as well to abide by all the guidelines and the the scientific guidelines that would lead to the prevention uh, of the spread of the virus similar to to schools. So, So As you know, we have actually postponed the opening of AUB because of what's happening and because of this resurgence in the the cumulative number of cases in Lebanon. And uh, the first four weeks of the uh, semester uh, are going to be fully online until we assess the situation in order to determine whether there would be uh, a possibility to bring uh, more students on campus or not. We only have time for, for one more question, the, the, the magic question. When do you anticipate that a um, vaccine might be available or, more, or could there be more than one vaccine? Because we hear so many different uh, trials. Realistically, when do you think vaccines will allow people to uh, go back somewhat to the pre-pandemic uh, period? So we do have in in human clinical trials, 29 uh, clinical trials on vaccines. And we do have six of them actually are at an advanced stage of these clinical trials, uh, meaning that they have tested the uh, two phases, uh, uh, including the dosage. So they have optimized the doses of the vaccine. They have also determined the safety of these vaccines, and they have determined the immunogenicity, which is the ability to induce the immune responses in order to generate protection against SARS-CoV-2 and protect against acquisition of COVID-19. And these six platforms of vaccines are actually going soon and getting ready for their phase three, which is testing them in many sites all over the world on thousands and thousands of people. So uh, realistically, many of them are pushing for uh, either uh, the end 
end of this year or early uh, next year, you know, end of 2020 or early 2021. The, the key actually issue in all of these is not when, is however, the ability to protect from, from COVID-19 and what would be the duration of the protection. So while I'm very optimistic, I'm a little, I, I always keep on saying that we have to be cautiously uh, optimistic rather than, but, but I'm, I am optimistic that hopefully at the beginning of 2021, we would have something out. Coming from you, Dr. Nada Milham, that's a nice note of optimism because there's very few people around who know about this more than you do. Thank you for being with us. Our guest has been Dr. Nada Milham, who is the Director of the Division of Health Professions at the Faculty of Health Sciences at AUB, and she also holds many other positions in virology and immunology and national and AUB committees on, uh, on the COVID-19. Uh, that's our show for today, Professors at Work. I'm your host, Rami Khouri. Thanks for being with us, and join us again next week. Bye for now. <laughs>